Hi friends, my name is Julia Mateana Friedman and this is Personal Stories of St. James's. I'm excited about this guest and I hope that you enjoy some of the stories she is going to share with us. A quick reminder that if you would like to interview someone in the congregation, please reach out to the Reverend Matt Stewart, Matt at St. James dash cambridge.org and that's st james dash cambridge.org i am interrupting this introduction very briefly to say that this was recorded before the vice presidential candidate announcement and i want to take a moment to say that there are lots and lots of vocations that are um, as we all know heavily male-dominated, that I want to express my sense of gratitude for the strong, ambitious, and courageous women in the generations before me that have made it possible and paved a way for younger women leaders like myself. I feel grateful that I have women preachers, deacons, spiritual leaders, Sunday school teachers, and all of these types of role models in my own vocation. And in this season of media whiplash, political whiplash, coronavirus whiplash, I want to express a sentiment of hope for the future because of the women who have gone before us. And so on behalf of all of us, you know, millennials and uh, Generation Z and, and all of us um, younger folks. I want to express my deepest gratitude and humblest um, reverence for all the women who have gone before us to pave a way that makes it possible and even more enjoyable for us to lead the lives that God has called us to. And so I think you'll actually find that this um, next guest and this entire interview is timely. She is a woman of faith, uh, a woman of um, Latino heritage. In fact, she had so many great stories, I wasn't able to even include all of them. So I hope that you might reach out to her and connect with her if you find that you want to chat more. Without further ado, let's jump in. Michelle, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. I was hoping you would introduce yourself briefly. Sure. I am Reverend Michelle Torres. I attended the Episcopal Divinity School so I graduated EDS in 1995, and I graduated Leslie in 96. So I was sponsored um, from the Diocese of El Camino Real. Bishop Shimfke came out to ordain me, and I was ordained at St. Stephen's in the South End um, in a bilingual congregation. One of the first questions we like to ask people is where they grew up and what that was like for you. Sure. So I grew up in Corona, California, so which is um, southeast of L.A. in Riverside County. And 
Um, it was a pretty small town, around 20,000 in my youth, and it's now like over 100,000 and very different. My, It was funny. We actually had, there was an Episcopal priest who lived down the street, and we were friends with his daughters. And um, so we used to go to church with him and his wife and his daughters. And then my parents went on a marriage encounter weekend when I was in sixth grade, and that brought them and the, back to church. And so then as a family, we started going. Yep, it's actually St. John's and Corona. Yep, and actually my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother on the maternal side are all Episcopal. Okay. And my, okay, my have... parents were married by an Episcopal priest. Wow, yes. Very deep lineage of Episcopalians. Yes, yes. Um, out of curiosity, do you notice a difference, or, or did you when you first came to, like, the Boston area in uh, Western Episcopal, Episcopals and Eastern Episcopals, or is there a lot of a lot more overlap? Well, the, the church different? buildings are very different. I mean, I love the classic, you know, old stone kind of New England-style churches. So the architecture, I would say, is not as interesting as it is here, I think. St. John's was low church, so I never experienced high church until I was out here. Interesting. Um, Michelle, for our listeners who maybe don't know the difference between low church and high church, would you you feel comfortable explaining that briefly? Well, I I refer to high church as smells and bells, right? So it's like a thoroughfare, um, you know, someone chiming the bells around communion time, kneeling, more genuflecting. That's generally what I think of in terms of the difference. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be the high church. Right, Step, right. Definitely high church, right. sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I was actually in the choir called the Mini Singers, and at one point we had a, a former Catholic priest became an Episcopal priest, and his wife was a formal, former nun, and she was called Miss Kitty, and so she ran the choir. She was very strict. Um, ah, okay. <laughs> but um, we at one point we had a lot of like folk, you know, kind of type Eucharists that were very family friendly. And um, I was an acolyte, and my dad was a crucifer and a chalice bear. I gave my first sermon at twelve. I'm interested if you're willing to give us some of the highlights of how you knew you were supposed to become ordained and go into kind of formal ministry in the way that you have? Sure. So um, I was originally pre-med. I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. I'm a cancer survivor. I had cancer at 13. That in sixth grade, I wanted to be a veterinarian and I had to interview a veterinarian and like write a little paper about that. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's how cancer like shifted my interests was um, first, I wanted to be a PT because I was supposed to have little to no use of my arm because the tumor was in my shoulder, right shoulder. And I adored my physical therapist, Larry, so I wanted to be a PT. And it was actually my oncologist, Dr. Antoinette Bedros from Turkey, um, who said to me, you know, you could do anything. 
and um, and you should be a doctor. Really had a huge impact. When I was pre, I did my undergrad at Stanford University, and I was able to do a summer internship, and then I wrote an honors thesis where I did a study of adolescents who were refusing chemotherapy. And so I I did an internship, and then I did my own study at Children's in Los Angeles, um, where I was treated um, the summer of my junior and senior year. And then I actually had my honors thesis published with, you know, the co-authored by my advisor. It sounds like, I mean, it's more complex than this, um, but it sounds like having survived cancer for you at such a young age kind of started this trajectory of, caring for people's spiritual lives in these moments of crisis for you. Yes, that what I found was that because I knew what a lot of the procedures felt like, I that would be very hard to be the person administering them in terms of things like chemotherapy and lumbar punctures or bone marrow aspirations and that I was really interested in how people were making meaning both from an emotional and spiritual standpoint. So, you know, kind of early on had both this interest in the psychological and theological and spiritual aspects of things. When I went back to Stanford that fall, I took a class at the med school called the Biosocial Aspects of Cancer, and they had specialists, experts in each field who gave the lecture, and they had uh, Reverend Dr. Ernley Young, who is a Methodist minister who started the hospital chaplaincy program at Stanford Medical Center. And he spoke about his role as chaplain, hospital chaplain, and defined and defined spirituality as helping the person love themselves, find meaning in their life, and hope in the future. And that was really like a bell going off for me of like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Wow, Michelle, that's really cool. I like this idea of helping a person love themselves, find meaning in their life, and hope for the future. What a great way of summarizing some of the work that you do. And really, all of us are looking for those three things in some way or another. And of course, in CPE, you know, their job is to like broaden your horizons, right? And realizing that it doesn't have to just be cancer patients, that I can really utilize my experience you know, to anybody Mm -hmm. in a hospital setting. And I had phenomenal CPE supervisors, um, two women, and particularly that she was a UCC minister, and then Amy Eilberg, she was the first woman rabbi ordained in the conservative Jewish movement and also a social worker. So she had that, you know, dual interest that I did. And so they were phenomenal mentors for me. Yeah, that's that's really neat, Michelle. Thanks for sharing that. Could you tell me a little bit more about your spiritual life and journey coming through cancer at such a young age? Sure. I ended up writing a, a paper my freshman year in college about, um, you know, kind of like why me, right? And in terms of, mm-hmm. it's kind of like basically that, 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 question of theodicy of why do bad things happen to good people and yeah and I remember when at the time I would really wrestle with you know being in junior high and um, you know junior high a lot of kids can be pretty mean Um, Mm -hmm. and 
you know, and, and getting into trouble in terms of using drugs. And, you know, at that with my 13 year old brain thinking like, why not, you know, a kid who's getting into trouble, like why me? (laughs) And I, I think, you know, over the years you come to the point of why not me, you know, in terms of it can, can happen to anybody. Um, marriage encounter community that my parents were part of really was a tremendous support and also people at the church and they made a prayer scroll um, where it was like a long sheet of butcher paper that went from the floor to the ceiling with my name and the prayer at the top and Mm. every day of the week and under every day were listed the names of people who were praying for me and every week I got mail at my cousin's, oh, wow. you know. Um, I got letters and gifts and prayers. And um, there's actually a couple who are friends of my parents from who are Episcopalian and friends from Marriage Encounter. And the woman has had polio her whole life. And her husband was a teacher at the California School for the Deaf, and they're just like remarkable people. They used to be the youth group leaders at their church, and mm-hmm. and she would send me the most amazing cards um, and gifts, but her, her letters were just, um, and there was a youth group teacher um, who also wrote me regularly who I could be really honest with. What a lovely image to see the community of God coming around you in that way. Michelle, I wonder if you want or can tell us about what spiritual needs uh, look like now in this time of pandemic, especially in your work as a chaplain. What things do you notice have changed and what do you notice has remained consistent? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of the biggest changes was that I think as of April 4th or 5th, whatever that Monday was, I started working remotely mm-hmm. uh, because of Mateo having restrictive lung disease and being especially fragile. Mateo is my oldest son and he is now 13 and he is medically complex and um, has a refractory seizure disorder that basically interferes with the brain's ability to send out signals. And so it really impacts him in a global way. And mm-hmm. one of the ways is he has low tone and that has led to restrictive lung disease. And he's actually having his spinal fusion this coming Monday because of mm-hmm. um, a curvature of the spine and um, there were a lot of blessings in that in terms of his care became more complex over that time and just being able to be home, but being able to get outdoors regularly with both boys, um, you know, that that was kind of a, a nice, a positive aspect of the pandemic. Um, yeah. And then in terms of... Um, you know, working in the hospital. So it's interesting in terms of, you know, the number of Zoom visits and telemedicine has, you know, exponentially increased. And um, it's interesting because I've been on both sides of that. I've been on it as a parent 
and I've been on it as a caregiver, um, you know, visiting with patients as a chaplain through Zoom and, you know, or a phone call. And of course, you know, there are, there are pluses and, and minuses to that. It's more, you know, in some ways it's convenient to just be able to be in your home and, and talk with a provider. Um, and, and yet you don't have the hands-on, um, aspect of things in terms of being able to have something, you know, seen and evaluated. Um, I think it's, um, I mean, at the hospital, I started a group called the Connection Project. It's basically kind of like a narrative medicine group where we have writing prompts and um, people do some writing on their own and then bring it to the meeting and share it. Dealing with the pandemic, that's been a really present theme in people's writings. Something that's been talked about is even like the sense of time in in the context of covid is different and distinct people the sense of um people being isolated those of us who are lucky enough to be able to get out of the house and and go to work and you know you have some socialization um provides a benefit that you know people that are only working in the home and don't have that social piece that that you know can be um very hard and and I think just the all the challenges of like child care challenges and mm-hmm. you know again kind of knowing that what that's like from a personal level of you know like both of us trying to work from home with two kids doing remote school is is a, is a lot to to juggle yeah yeah and it can be hard to get your work done just in terms of people in the hospital it makes it very complicated in terms of coming and going, um, the level of anxiety for parents. Um, I mean, I, I have a family that I followed, um, the little girl is almost three and I followed her most of her life and she had a double lung transplant and, um, she has a six month old little sister and then a 12 and a 14 year old sister and brother the mom leaves the hospital at like five in the morning to go home and um, cook for dad and the siblings and spend time with the kids. And dad goes to work very early. And then she goes, she's back in the hospital by 1 PM. Um, And so you think about, you know, so it's the anxiety of coming back and forth in terms of germs, but also just the physical, mental, and spiritual exhaustion yeah. that people are, are handling. It's interesting that my families in the hospital really um, get very upset with their communities when they see people who aren't wearing masks or who aren't mm-hmm. social distancing, who, mm-hmm. because, you know, they have children who have an a, a particular vulnerability. And and the other thing is people are touch deprived. Again, I have a family who's part of a very large church and you know, I I mean I think in this case the there's many reasons, but like the pastor was not ever willing to come into the hospital to see the patient. Aww. Um and you know, and 
thankfully that's why I'm there in chaplains. And, you know, that's, that's hard for the families, you know, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's, and, you know, I had another family where, um, a, a teenager had not been baptized and, mm-hmm. um, he, his priest came in to baptize him and, you know, they don't let only, only the parents are allowed to visit. No, no siblings can visit. And in this case, the, the aunt and uncle were the godparents and they wouldn't, the godparents couldn't even come back. You know, that, that basically the ICU made an exception to let the priest come back and do the baptism with the parents. So um, I did advocate for the godparents to come back and got kind of scolded. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, you understand both parts in terms of, totally. you know, that the nurse manager, her job is to keep keep everybody keep safe. Keep safe and healthy. So, and, yeah, yep. no, I, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's definitely complex. Complex indeed. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and for the giving of your time. I know that you are busy and we will let you get back to it. But before we do and before we say goodbye, I wondered if you had words of wisdom or any final thoughts for us. Sure. I think just encouraging people to reach out, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think that if you know somebody who lives alone, who's, or, who's isolated, to, to reach out and check in. You know, I know of families who do Zoom calls once a month or, you know, on some kind of regular schedule. I know I'll give a shout out to Nancy Ardell, who, you know, I know we get a letter from her uh, regularly. And I think that's a wonderful mm-hmm. ministry that she does. And I know we're more busy than than ever. And I'm sure many people are. There are lots of online resources, everything you could imagine from, you know, exercise to mindfulness and meditation um, yeah. and support groups and um, whatever it is that your spirit is sort of aching exactly. for. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it's a great time to write. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think this is an important time that we'll look back on and, you know, that can learn from. And, I, I you know, I, I think that, you know, that there's that saying that with every crisis, there's an opportunity and just kind yeah. of you know, seizing those opportunities to be kind, to say, how are you and mean it. Michelle, thank you. That is a great word for our, for all of us. And I, I really do appreciate your time again. And I hope My you pleasure. continue to stay healthy and be well. And I will certainly do that. And, you know, I feel very blessed to be part of St. James's. Well, Michelle, we're glad to have you as part of our community and your family as well. Well, folks, that's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Personal Stories of St. James's. Again, if you feel inspired to interview someone, please send the priest in charge, Matt Stewart, an email. Goodbye for now.